Well, good morning, Northgate. I appreciate that you have all sort of braved the cold weather uh, to be here. I'm sure there was many cars that didn't start this morning and maybe some hearts that just wanted to stay in bed. Uh, but yeah, other than a very sort of cold drive here this morning, it's very good to be back with you uh, here. Uh, I was able to take a little bit of time off at Christmas, which is very refreshing. Uh, but yeah, I'm just glad to be back because uh, the beginning of the year is always, I think, a very exciting time. You know, it's a new thing. It's new possibilities, new challenges, and let's face it, there are probably going to be all kinds of new problems that come our way as well. And as I was thinking about that, what I wanted to do over the break was really come up with what I wanted to preach on for the next little while here. I wanted to answer the question, I guess, what, what can I talk about? What could give us sort of guidance and assurance as we face sort of these unknown days before us? What you know, topic from the Word of God could give us strength and even hope in both the good times and the bad times and the sad times that we're likely to face? Um, and the answer that I kept coming up with again and again was I kept coming back to Jesus uh, because Jesus is everything to us as believers. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our comfort. He's our friend. He's our guide. He's our example, he's our savior, he's our Lord. And I thought, you know, just after, after having just sort of finished with Christmas and looking at Jesus' birth and all of that for that time, I thought, you know, what a great opportunity just to keep the story going uh, and just continually looking at Jesus' life from the time after Christmas, taking it all the way to the cross and beyond, which will take us right to Easter. And we'll do that by focusing our time in just the next few weeks on, on just one of the Gospels. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, just looking at the life of Jesus. And understand, we're not going to go through every single passage in the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be more of an overview. Let's just sort of hit some of the highlights that I think are going to just deeply speak into our lives. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning, Luke chapter 4, uh, the temptation of Jesus. And if you know, you know, after Jesus' birth, there's a very sort of brief story in the book of Luke that talks about Jesus as an eight-year-old boy in the temple. But for the most part, after that, there's about 30 years of silence in Jesus' life uh, where he lives in obscurity until this moment. As Jesus steps out of that obscurity and he's baptized and he begins his earthly ministry, but he doesn't do that before facing a very big challenge. And it's a challenge that I think all of us will face in our lives at one time or another, in fact, probably every day, the challenge of temptation. And if you'd like to follow along with me, we're going to read our passage, Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 13. And it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up to, and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that, Lord, you would be with us once again in our time together. Lord, as this body of believers have gathered faithfully uh, to be together on this cold Sunday morning, I pray that, Lord, both your Holy Spirit and the, the joy of the Lord and the, the warmth of our fellowship would keep us warm and keep us focused on the words that you would have us here this morning. Uh, pray that, you, Lord, you would be our teacher. Pray that, Lord, you would be present with us as we open your word, that, Lord, you would reveal truth to us. And that, Lord, it would not be just truth we hear in our heads, but, Lord, something that we begin to live out just daily in our hearts. Lord, truth that changes us and the way that we live and shapes us and makes us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, moment by moment. Lord, yeah, we ask that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a new year. It was nice to be greeted with Happy New Year at the door this morning. Uh, but as the new year comes, you know, the old one passes away, and sometimes it's good riddance, but the new one comes. And it's a time of transition in our lives. And transitions can always be tough. Uh, no one really likes change. Uh, I just got married. It's change. And you realize that in your life, even good change can bring all kinds of stress and unknowns into your lives. And as we come to Jesus in our passage in Luke 4, understand Jesus is a place where he's facing a transition. Transition from, you know, a quiet, humble life as a carpenter. As Jesus is about to walk into the world to, become, to begin his public ministry and fulfill all that God has placed before him. And I just want to just, I want you to for a minute just imagine that moment for a second. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus that last day in his carpenter shop? As he walked in, perhaps the door squeaked on his hinges as he pushed it open. Where he looked around that room that must have been like a second home to him. You know, life had been so quiet there, so peaceful, so very safe. You know, perhaps it was on that dirt floor that he'd played as a toddler while his father worked there. Or perhaps it was there that Joseph taught him how to grip a hammer and use the tools of the trade and how to craft the wood that would become his trade. And it was likely there that he had, you know, built his first chair or plow or table for a paying customer. A place so full of sweet memories. And maybe, maybe he took a moment just to balance the hammer in his hand one time. Or run his fingers along the sharp teeth of a saw. Or, you know, touch the smooth wood of the sawhorse. Or breathe in that smell of sawdust and lumber one last time. Maybe, just maybe, he even rolled a nail between his thumb and his finger as he anticipated the pain of the nails in his own flesh that he knew still lay before him. And I wonder if in that moment he hesitated. 
I wonder if in that moment his heart was a bit torn because, you see, Jesus had a choice. He didn't have to go. He could have stayed in his shop. He could have told his father in heaven he didn't want to go through with it. He could have chosen to stay behind after all. I'm sure life as a carpenter probably wasn't all that bad. The work was honest and enjoyable. I'm sure he was respected in his community and had many friends. It wasn't as if he couldn't make an impact for God if he just chose to stay in Galilee. He had customers and friends and family, all of whom's lives he could have touched in meaningful ways. You know, some people think that it's only people in full-time ministry that can make a difference in the lives of people. It's not true. There are millions of faithful Christians working nine-to-five jobs who are owning businesses and just making a living who, in just doing that, are impacting the world very powerfully for God. So it's not that carpentry was a lower calling. It's simply that that was not the calling that God had put upon Jesus' life. And you know, that's the thing about temptation. It's always a choice. A choice really between two paths. It's it's a choice between following God in obedience or a choice to just walk your own way. And Jesus made his choice. And he put down the hammer and he embraced the nails that would pin him to the cross. He chose to walk away from all that he had known, all that was safe, and into the life that God had called him to. So you can imagine Jesus closing the heavy doors to his workshop behind him and just walking away. Away from his old life, away from his home, and towards the Jordan River, which was where John the Baptist was was preaching repentance to the people of Israel. And he was gathering quite a following. And he was baptizing those in repentance who would come to him. And Jesus himself went there. And he entered those waters and was baptized we're told in the previous chapter of Luke, Luke 3, beginning of verse 21, says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom you I am well pleased. And it's from that moment that our passage continues in Luke 4. Where in Luke 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now talk about, I guess, a rough beginning. You know, they often say in ministry, uh, you often get a honeymoon phase. When you start a new pastorate, you go somewhere. People are always nice to you for about at least six months before they decide whether they like you or not. Uh, Jesus didn't get that. It was a rough beginning. But you know what? That certainly shouldn't be unexpected because, you know, there are people who believe that You know, when you become a follower of Christ, that temptation and trouble are just naturally things that disappear from your life. But here we actually see the truth. Temptation is a part of every person's life who chooses to follow God, even if that person is the Son of God. Because anyone who is serious about following God, anyone who is going to take risks for their faith, anyone who desires to make a difference in this world for Christ and his kingdom is going to face temptation in their lives. 
Temptation that's going to try to get them off track. Because, you know, the devil has nothing to fear from Christians who are mired in mediocrity and compromise and aren't going anywhere. But when a believer decides to follow God with a passion, when they get serious about their faith, Satan begins his assault. And there was no greater threat to Satan in all of the world or all time than Jesus when he began his ministry. And Luke continues in verse 2, as we're told, and he ate nothing during those days, 40 days. And when, he, or when they were ended, he was hungry. That sounds like an understatement. Because what a scene Luke reveals to us. Because think about this. I mean, temptation, when you face it, it's hard to face temptation when you're at your best. But here we find Jesus in a position of utter weakness. Now, many would point out that it was likely this was a supernatural moment because for so long, not having food, Jesus may have been so frail that God may have had to sustain his very life just to keep him alive. This is a place of human weakness beyond what most people will ever know. And when you're in a place like that, it can be so easy to let your guard down, so easy just to say, I give up. So here we have Jesus badly weakened, physically exhausted, and walking into enemy territory. And Satan, with an undefeated record of tempting mankind to sin, is about to pull out all the stops. Now believe me, he's no slouch when it comes to temptation. He's about to throw everything he had, every trick, every deception, every lure at Jesus to see if he could get him to stumble. And he begins in verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. And you know, again, I'm sure by this point, food was probably something that was pretty frequently on Jesus' mind. I go on a diet for a week, all I can think about is donuts. That's just... So Satan just says to Jesus, Jesus, make something to eat. Turn the stone into bread. And it kind of leads me to wonder... Where is the evil in that request? What's fundamentally wrong with turning a stone into bread? I mean, wouldn't Jesus go on to turn water into wine and feed 5,000 people from a few loaves and fish? Why in this place and at this time was this request a temptation for him? Well, I think it was a temptation because Satan was basically saying to Jesus, just bend the rules. Because remember, Jesus didn't do anything without first being led by his Father in heaven. But Satan here is really saying to Jesus, Jesus, why not just do it yourself? I mean, do you really want to fully put your life into God's hands? I mean, can you really trust your heavenly Father in all things, even if it means hardship, even if it means you go so hungry? And do you really need to suffer so badly when relief is so very close and so very easy. Why not, Jesus, why not just use a few of your own resources, your own strength, and get yourself out of this situation that God has left you in? And you know, when you hear it kind of like that, you might just ask, how many of us have not had the temptation to be self-sufficient and self-reliant at times? How many of us, when we're in a tough situation, instead of going to God and waiting for an answer, we simply take back control of our lives and we try to fix the problem ourselves? 
You know what? I'll deal with that guy myself. I'll worry about my own finances. I'll take control of my own future. I'll just, I'll just turn these stones into bread. That's just the easiest way out of this. I'll do it myself. I don't need to bring God into this. And honestly, thinking about that this week, I'm struck just by, I guess, how common and how cunning a temptation this is even in my own life. Because I know there are so many of my own problems that never make it to the throne of grace. Because it's just easier to deal with them myself. And sometimes I even take pride in being so self-sufficient. Pride in, look at how much I can accomplish on my own. There's many days I know in my life after reading this that I know I am doing my best to turn my own stones into bread. I'm relying on my own strength and I'm depending on my own resources instead of waiting on God. But Jesus had a response. In verse four, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus is saying here that there's more to life than just meeting our personal wants and needs. There's more to life than just having a full belly. Because there's a spiritual reality that is all around us. A spiritual reality that's even more important and even more real than the physical world. Because even a full belly cannot drown out our soul's hunger for God. And yet people try. People try food and drink to fill the emptiness or drugs and alcohol or sex and decadence. There, all these things you try to do to feed the body, something that you're going to think will fill the hole in your heart that is left by a lack of knowledge of God. But it never works. And Jesus won't fall for it. He knows that there's no point in feeding your body if your soul is going to starve. There's no point in doing it all on your own if it leaves us spiritually alone with no room for God to work in our lives and it just pushes God out of our lives. So Satan's first attempt fails. But you know, he still has a few tricks up his sleeve and if hunger for food was not enough, maybe hunger for power would be. As you read in verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And the second temptation that Jesus faces, I think is again all too real in our lives. It's the temptation that says, you know, a little compromise is okay if it's going to make my life easier. And you know, it seems pretty clear that this was something Satan actually had within his power to do. This was not an empty promise. The power and authority of Satan in this world was and still is very real. And yet Satan offers to trade it all away. All of his power, all of his authority, all the kingdoms of the world, everything. He'll trade it all away for one small, one-time act of misplaced worship by Jesus. And you know what? Never before and never again in history had so much power been offered to one man. Satan just offered Jesus everything. He offered him all of the power without the effort. He offered him all of the success he could ever imagine without the sweat. This could have been Jesus' fast track for building the kingdom of God on earth. It was a shortcut to victory. 
And sometimes I think we fail to realize the magnitude of Satan's offer here. Because Jesus could essentially win. Satan says, you know what, I'll give up and I'll walk away. He could establish his earthly kingdom. He could reshape and remake the nations. He could be king of the world and he would never have to face the horror of the cross. And sure, it meant people would still, you know, never be saved and they would die in their sins. But Jesus could have the power without the price. And I think of all of the temptations, I think this one probably really hit home for Jesus because this temptation would always be at the back of his mind when he thought about the cross. You know, we even see echoes of this temptation when Jesus is telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. And when he does that, we read in Matthew 16, 22, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen. That's Peter saying to Jesus, there has to be a loophole to get what you want without having to pay that price. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus had heard that temptation before. You see, Satan offered Jesus another way, a victory without death. And all that it would take was one small teensy-weensy compromise. And again, that is one of our greatest temptations as Christians, compromise. It's all the little white lies. It's the, all the times we think, oh, what could it hurt? It's all that I know I shouldn't, but maybe just once. And after all, we just want to think we're just going to make things easier. We'll take the path of least resistance. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to be weirdos. We'll just smooth things over by bending the rules a little bit. And yet the lesson we see Christ teach us here is that for him and for us, even the smallest compromise from the will of God is too much. And in verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus reminds Satan, you know what, Satan, it's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. You know, even in Gethsemane, when Jesus comes face to face with the reality of the cross, and you know the agony of that moment, he still prays the same thing, not my will, but yours be done. So for Satan, this is strike two. But he has one more chance to get it right. And if hunger and power wouldn't do it, maybe pride would. And in, I think, what is a, just a grievous misuse of Scripture, we read, beginning in verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan takes Jesus to the temple itself. You know, it's, it's the place where the people of God worshiped God. And it was a place that was just, it had a ready-made audience that was looking for a miracle. And Satan there lays his trap, saying, if you're the son of God, just show the people who you are. I mean, just, just take a moment and just dazzle them with your greatness. And if you're the son of God, act like it. And impress them. Just do something spectacular. If you're the son of God, let's see a trick. 
If you're the son of God, prove it. Let's, if you're the son of God, let's see a miracle. And if you do, Jesus, you know, you won't have to hide in the shadows anymore. There's no more playing the role of a humble carpenter, no more small time living in Galilee. If you show off, it could be the big time for you. You know, you give the people a show and they're going to love you. They Give them what they want and they will take, you can take all the glory for yourself. And as I reflect on that temptation, I honestly, I have two responses to Satan's words there. And the first is, I understand the pressure of being a people pleaser. Uh, you know, the temptation not to be true to myself and just, you know, be what people want me to be and do what people want me to do and give people what they want. You know, to try to impress people, even if doing so makes you miserable sometimes. You know, some people live a lie. They put on an act their entire life because they feel if they were simply to be themselves, they may reject them. People pleasing, it's tough. But the second thing I'm just convicted of here in this verse is I guess when I hear Satan's words, I'm convicted of how much I wish God would act like that more often. How often I want God to be spectacular in my life. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he captures this thought so well. When he writes, I recognize in myself a thin, hollow echo of the same challenge of Satan 2,000 years ago. There are times I want God to overwhelm me, to overcome all my doubts and give final proof of his existence. I want God to take a more active role in human history. I want him to destroy the tyrants. I want him feeding the hungry, fixing injustice, miraculously saving lives. And I want God to take a more active role in my life. I want quick and spectacular answers to prayer, healing for my diseases, protection for my family. I want a God without ambiguity one to whom I can point for the sake of my friends and just say, there he is. But you know, that's not the way God works. And we see that as we look at verse 12. And then Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God, your God, to the test. You see, God doesn't jump through hoops for our entertainment. Henry Nouwen says it like this. He says, Jesus refused to be a stuntman. He did not come to walk on hot clothes, swallow fire, or put his hand in a lion's mouth to demonstrate that he had something to say. Faith is more real than that. And you know, God is not motivated by fame, but by love. And he desires disciples, not fans clamoring in the seats for a show. God works for our salvation, not our entertainment. And you know, this world may have wanted a Messiah who performed spectacular tricks, but what it needed was a Savior who would quietly, humbly die on a cross. And that's what Jesus came to be. And in the end, after exhausting his bag of tricks, Satan had nothing left to offer. And verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until, a more op until, until an opportune time. And you know, keep in mind those three temptations we read about there that Luke has recorded. I think those are just the tip of the iceberg of what went on those 40 days in the desert and what continued to go on in Jesus' life because Satan would never give up trying to bring down the Son of God. In fact, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet 
without sin. Because temptation is a part of living a life of faith. We're going to be tempted. Tempted to meet our own needs, tempted to fulfill our own wants, tempted to live in our own strength, tempted to be a success apart from God, tempted to try to impress people instead of God. Temptation, it's all around us. So you know what, as we close, I just want to leave you a couple pieces of advice that I think will help us overcome some of those temptations and trials that we face in our lives. I know I'm a bit short on time, so I just ask for your patience here because I do think that knowing these things and putting them into practice is going to make a real difference in your walk with God, especially as you face the temptations that come your way. First application is you need to know that temptation is often very subtle. And that's why the Bible tells us so often we need to be on alert. You know, notice how, in our, even in our passage, Satan tries to twist truth and twist Scripture itself to make temptation look like it's a good idea. You know, rarely does temptation come out and hit you between the eyes and says, here's a really bad idea, let's do this. You know, that's why we need to be on alert and be careful how we live. We need to live with an awareness of what's going on around us, and we need to take temptation seriously. Which leads to the second word of advice I'd give you this morning, which is be careful what you expose yourself to. There's an old joke about a man who went to the doctor and he told the doctor, doctor, I've broken my arm in two different places. And when he asked the doctor what he should do, the doctor said, you should stay out of those two places. Which is a terrible joke, but it's actually really good advice. Because there are places and circumstances that as Christians, we should stay out of. And I remember singing that as a kid, that old Sunday school song, oh, be careful little hands what you do, and then your eyes what you see, and ears what you hear. It's good advice. Because the point is we need to be so careful about what influences we let into our lives. Be careful as Christians what we expose ourselves to. I remember here years and years ago in this church when I was a kid, I heard a sermon about um, and there's an illustration about a guy who was struggling with pornography. And he, he used to walk on his way to work every morning and he'd pass a pornography store and he'd always go in. And he talked to his pastor said, Pastor, what should I do? Because every morning, no matter how much I pray, I walk past the store and I walk in. And his pastor told him, go around the block. Just take a detour, go around. Don't walk past the store. It worked because it wasn't right there. And you know, if you have a problem with gambling, don't hang out at casinos. If you have a problem with drinking, don't go to bars. If you have, you know, don't go to those movies that glorify sex and violence. Be careful on the internet. Put up those parental blocker things. Turn off the music videos or the TV shows that put unwholesome images in your mind. Because you know what? A lot of temptation can be avoided simply by not being there when it happens. Be careful what you expose yourself to. Live carefully. But if you need more help in this area, you can also put this next piece of advice to play, which is be accountable. Because if you really want to overcome temptation, go and find a person or a group of people that you can be honest and open with about in your life. You know, I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. In my experience as a pastor, it's rare for a person to overcome habitual sin without being accountable to other people. That means guys, you can find a group of guys. Girls, you can find a group of girls and give those people, meet with them and give them permission to ask you tough questions and get tough with you about your walk with God to keep you on track. 
It's so much easier to keep from sin when you have other people who are willing to support you and pray for you and get tough with you and watch out for you. Be willing to be accountable. But even then, that alone is not enough because to overcome temptation, we also need to be filling our minds full of Scripture. Uh, You may have noticed how every time Christ answered Satan, he did it with Scripture, saying it is written or it is said. That's not a coincidence. That's an example for us when we are tempted. Jesus had his mind full of the good things of God and full of the word of God. And that allowed him to both identify the temptation and resist the temptation that he faced. You know, temptation is most absent in our lives when the word of God is most present. And that leads us to our final word of advice I'd give you this morning. And that's when it comes to temptation, be trusting God. Because God is our ally. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 13, says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, we're told here, temptation is always going to be a struggle, but God promises that he will be there with us when it happens. That God is watching out for us. And he never lets us be pushed past what we can handle. And, you know, part of me always wonders if me and God have different opinions about how much I can handle. Because, you know, it's just like... But the key to understanding that is this is not how much temptation I can handle if I'm all on my own. This is how much temptation you can handle when you're relying on God and his strength. And if you're trying to face temptation without God... You might as well give up now. You need to know that we have to go to God for strength and accept that way out when he provides it when it comes. It is only in his strength that we can find victory over temptation in our lives. I actually found a great quote that I think summarizes it well. It says, if we are to master temptation, we must first let Christ master us. It's a great words. In fact, I think one of the most powerful truths I've ever heard about temptation is that sin has no power for those people who are completely satisfied with God. John Piper writes, no one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds some promise of happiness, no matter how empty the promise may be. The very first lie in the Garden of Eden was that sin could offer us more than God. The same lie continues to lead us into sin today. Whether it's lust or greed or impatience or pride or bitterness or whatever, all of these things try to convince us that God is not enough. But the power of temptation is broken when we find contentment in Christ and Christ alone because sin and temptation no longer have anything to offer us. Temptation has no power for the person who has learned to trust in God for everything. So you know, this year as we come to a new year, Let me just ask, what are the temptations you're facing this morning? As you look at your life, what are the things in your life that are hindering your walk with God? What are the areas where you know you've just tried to do it all on your own? What are the compromises that are sneaking in and stealing away your intimacy with the Almighty? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's alcohol or some other pleasure of the world. Maybe It's your aspirations, a desire for fame and fortune. Maybe you're just too busy, 
doing other things to make time for God. Maybe it's pride. You know, being too stubborn to yield your life and depend on God's strength. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, the message we all need to hear this morning is that things can be different for you. You don't have to settle for half-hearted faith. You don't have to settle for a so-so walk with God. You don't have to settle for a life of falling to temptation time after time after time because there's victory available to us in Christ. And even though walking with God is never easy and temptations will always be there to try to get us off track, as great as temptation is, Christ is greater still. And perseverance and trust in God will always get us through. Make this year, this new year, the year you've always wanted to have with God. Make it a year for growth and challenge and adventures in faith. Make it, this, make it the year you step out of the carpentry shop of your own life and begin living the life God has called you to. Because again, if we're to master temptation, we must first let Christ be master of us. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, Lord, thank you so much for the life of Jesus. Because Lord, as we look at his life, Lord, his life is joy. His life is an example to us. His life is a proclamation of the truth of who he was as the son of God. And his life is the promises of God fulfilled. And Lord, it's a promise to us that Lord, even in the difficult times, even when temptations and trials come, we can know that you are with us. We can know that you will show us the way. And Lord, even though temptation is real, and there's so many places in our lives where we can stumble and fall, even know that even at our best, we're not going to be perfect. Um, and often life feels like, you know, we're out in that desert place. We're not coming at it at our best strength, but Lord, we're coming at it tired and weary and hungry. Lord, our prayer is that, Lord, you would just continue to give us strength, that you would be our strength, that, Lord, you would give us, you know, the perspective to see the temptations around us before we trip all over them. You would give us wisdom, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready to flee from temptation and run straight to you. Because, Lord, we know that when we trust in you, when we are satisfied in you and in you alone, that the power of sin and temptation is broken. And Lord, after reading these words this morning, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. We thank you that the hope we have in him, we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for Jesus himself, who is our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.